If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. We have a mission to improve the welfare of horses throughout the world through the safe education of riders, handlers and trainers and that's what these chats are all about. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Today I'd like to introduce George Sanna. George is a Level 3 show jumping specialist coach. He's also a dual Olympian, has ridden in three World Cup finals in the World Equestrian Games. How are you today, George? I'm really well, thanks. Great. Great. George, I'm going to start off by asking you your favourite inspirational quote. Well, I'm sort of known as a coach to have a view. It's not, it's not really inspirational. It's just one, it's a quote that I use when I'm teaching. Mm-hmm. It's not, not really inspirational. I don't have any inspirational quotes, but one that I, that I use a lot yep. when I'm teaching. I often say, you know, you shouldn't be surprised by something that's always going to happen. You know, so, okay. So okay. if you're going too fast, the horse is going to get flat. If you're going too slow, he's not going to jump the ox. So if he's if you jump big into a line, it's going to ride short. If you jump backwards into a line, it's going to ride long. So you know that. So mm-hmm. don't be surprised when it happens. Then you haven't done anything about it. So right. that's, that's, no, that's it's not really inspirational, but it's just a bit of a teaching quote, and and a lot of people throw it back at me occasionally. Okay, so I'm going to throw it back at you now. Did someone tell it to you? Did you use that to learn by? No, no, that's my invention. (laughs) Okay, so you just have seen it again and again, so it saves explaining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. When you teach people and they get to a certain level, you know, and they're not beginners anymore, then then when they do something dumb, I I pull it out and just say, well, what else is going to happen? You mean, if they're learners, obviously they don't know that it's going to happen because Mm -hmm. they haven't got that experience. But once Mm -hmm. they get to a certain point, if there's a four-stride line there and you come booming in with a big bold canter and you jump and you stand off it, yep. when clearly it's going to ride like three and a half, not like sure. four, you know what I mean? Sure. So, so that sort of stuff. So that, I sort of pulled that out a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Makes people come in and think a bit more, I think, in preparation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 You've got to think ahead, yeah. yeah. Yep. All right, George, you've come from a horse family, haven't you? Your father, is that right? Yeah, yeah. My father was Hungarian and mm-hmm. he, um, before the Second World War, he was sort of in the in the Hungarian cavalry, not that they were charging at the tanks, but but it was sort of like what sort of the landed gentry did a bit. And he was attached, but just before the war, to the Spanish Riding School, which mm-hmm. which in those days had two divisions, had one in Budapest and one in Vienna. Mm-hmm. And he rode at the Olympics in 1936 in okay. three-day Yep. So you had a fairly early interest. Do you remember your first time you rode or was it too early? Well... I didn't start very early, even though my father, when my parents immigrated to Australia, they ended up in Perth, mm-hmm. and, and I grew up in Perth until I was about 12, and Dad sort of got involved in the horse industry over there. It was, you can imagine in the in the 50s, it was pretty basic, mm-hmm. but I had no interest at all in riding when I was a kid. You know what I mean? I, I, okay. I, I loved cricket and football, and, and, and my brother was eight years older than I was, but he was really into it, and, and Dad was teaching him, and they couldn't get me near a horse. I wasn't <laughs> I was interested at all, and it's only when we shifted to... Uh, Dad wanted to move to Melbourne because the equestrian scene was a whole lot more active mm. and vibrant and more advanced, and he wanted to be a part of that. So we, we moved when I was 12, that was in 64, mm-hmm. to Victoria. And I, I don't know why, I, I think it was just, you know, breaking into a new school, you know, because I'd been captain of the football team and cricket team, and all of a sudden you've got to start from the bottom. Mm. And we lived a bit out of town, 
So it was a bit of, you know, sort of late, you know, after-school sports and weekend sports just were really, really difficult to, to manage because Dad ran a riding school. And so people said it was because there were a lot of girls riding that, 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 <laughs> that, I, that I got interested that uh, I think, I, I don't think it was quite as shallow as that. Okay, okay. How old were you at that stage? Yeah, uh, 12, 13. Okay, all right. So when you first left school, you didn't start off in the horse industry, did you? Or well, I went to you, university. You kept, yep, yep. I went to university. Yep. So once I started to ride, you know, mm-hmm. when, as when I was sort of like thirteen, I got very, very keen. We, you know, Dad had a riding school, so they're riding school ponies, and 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 I had a sort of a bit of a European start, you know, yep. a lot of sitting trot without stirrups and all that sort of stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and then I sort of progressed during secondary school, and by the time I did my trick, I was, um, oh, you know, I had several horses. I was competing at a reasonably high level, you know, like mm-hmm. Melbourne Royal and that sort of stuff, you know. And you know, I was mad, bad, mad keen. And then when when I finished school, you know, I was, it was sort of clear that I was going to go to university because because I was reasonably academic, and, mm-hmm. and uh, my parents had sort of, you know, sacrificed a lot to get me to a really good school and, and that sort of stuff. So, you know, I honestly didn't didn't really envisage doing anything else but going to university and getting a career that way. Yes. And, and but I was passionate about the horses. I didn't really think through, you know, how, where that was going to go. Mm-hmm. At that time, no. no, not when I left school anyway. Yeah. Okay. So when you made the career then, when you made the change then to work full-time with horses, to have a horse business, to coach, to ride, what was the change? Was there anything that brought it on that you thought, right, from now on well, I'm going to do it? Or? Well, I, well, I finished my law degree yep. and, and I thought, you know, it was a dream of every showing boy and probably girl mm. to go on the road. You know, it was sort of like there was just this magical thing to go on the road. You know, you're travelling mm. from show mm. to show and yep. – and uh, living off your wits and finding girls and winning classes, you know that was yep. the, you know, and you go from show to show all up and down the east coast of Australia. Uh-huh. So I thought, okay, well, I, when I finished university, I thought I still didn't think that I was going to make a living out of horses, but I thought I'm going to. This is something I've always wanted to do all through my university years. I was competing a lot, and by that time, I'd done a few horse deals and bought myself a truck, and I was actually going around doing a lot of shows yes. during during those university years. And then when I finished I was gonna you know, I was gonna go on the road, which is what I did. I, I sort of thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this for a year mm-hmm. and then I'm going to assess my life and probably go and do my articles and become a lawyer. Yes. So even then all I wanted to do was show jump, but I still couldn't see how it was actually going to be a living. Because mm. I, I knew my dad, he ran a riding school, which is not what I wanted to do anyway, to run a riding school. Mm. But it was it was a financial struggle for sure. So it's sort of not really how I saw my life. Mm. But um but anyway, that's where it turned out. <laughs> okay. All right. So just thinking about, you know, some of the people that you teach now, you know, you've got working students, you've got students that you teach. If they say, if someone says, but I want to make a career with horses, what are the core skills that they need to commence that career? Well, it depends on what they want to do. You know, if they just mm. want to teach, you know what I mean, then they've yeah. got to get they've at, got to at get a basic there. level. Let's, let's just work if on they, a basic. They just teach at a basic level. You mm. know what I mean, teach some pony club kids in, yep. in the district. Maybe just to supplement their own riding a little bit. And yep. and if they got their own place and they, you know, or they're happy to jump in a car and travel around the district and teach kids, then they need to have. You know, they need to do their NCIS certificate, so they've got insurance. Mm-hmm. Yep. They need to have a good understanding to teach. I think one thing that I've observed is to be a good teacher, you need to have been taught. You yes. Know, I don't think yep. very many people who haven't been taught, who are sort of people who might be outstanding riders, but they're sort of intuitive, they very rarely become good coaches because they don't really understand the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you've been taught and you've been a student, it's much easier for you to be a teacher yep. if you've never been through that process, if you've just figured it out as you've gone along. And mm. even if you become an extremely good rider and very successful, 
I generally don't think those sorts of people tend to become good teachers. Mm -hmm. So I think you've got to understand the process. If you want to teach, you've got to understand the process, even if you're teaching learners, you know. Yep. Obviously, you've got to have good people skills. You you know, you people got to feel comfortable and not intimidated. And you've got to have, you know, but depending on the level you teach, you don't have to be any great Olympian to, to teach people to rise to the trot and to do it well and to do it safely. Mm -hmm. But if you want to make a living out of being a decent coach, well, then I think you know, like a high-level coach, an elite-level coach, mm. then the first thing you've got to have is credibility. Yep. So to, credibility to, as a competitor? As a competitor. Yep. You've got to have runs on the board because, it, you know, people, especially nowadays, you know, there's you know, there's such a short memory. People are not interested in the history of the sport. People only, you know, the young kids, who, you know, even, even the ones who are really keen and interested in the sport, they only know who won the Grand Prix last week. You know what I mean? So, mm. so you've got to have a good reputation. You've got to have credibility. You, got, you know, for you to get up and tell people who are jumping at a decent level and, you know, and I'm, I'm talking a decent level. I'm talking metre 20 plus. Yep. And people who want to go into Australian championships and juniors and young riders or, or more advanced than that, then for sure you've got to have the credibility of having been a good competitor yourself and having put runs on the board and having a good knowledge and understanding of the sport. So I think at the higher levels, that background is very, very important. And it takes a long time to do that. It takes a long time to become good at the sport and to be successful at the sport over a period of time and develop a good reputation, being a good trainer or a rider. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory with practical components that can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website, again, is onlinehorsecollege.com. Thanks. All right, now, you have a lot of young riders. How can you tell which ones are going to excel? What sort of character traits would they have so that you know that they're going to just outshine and beat the others? And Yeah, I, I think a really good work ethic is mm -hmm. is almost the top, you know what I mean? I, I've taught lots of kids who are great talents, but not necessarily with a great work ethic, and some who, who are not totally untalented, but they're not amazing, but with a really good work ethic, and a really they really want to understand mm -hmm. how to do it well. They want to look after their horses well. They want to do the sport well. They nearly always end up the better ones. Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah. So a work ethic and a real desire to do the sport well. Okay. You know what I mean? Is is, is, I, is I think almost the most important right. thing. Yeah, apart from obvious things, if you're morbidly obese, you, you know, if this is mm. probably not the sport for you, or if you know, or if you're terrified, if you're frightened. Yep. But when I teach a lot of kids, the boys tend to be sort of a little bit sort of dumb brave, you know. Whereas whereas girls, girls tend to be at the beginning more cautious, and their bravery and their confidence comes from actually understanding the process and being able to master the process. And then when they feel that they know what they're doing and they can actually do it, they become confident and in the end they become very, very brave. And in the end, the good female riders are every bit as brave as the boys. The boys just start off a bit dumb brave. Mm -hmm. the, girls, the girls find their way. So I think you, in many ways you teach boys and girls a little differently. You know what I mean? I think mm. girls need to be slightly encouraged and you really need to explain stuff to them so that they understand and they feel they can do that whereas boys sometimes they need to be knocked on the head a little bit and you know, <laughs> you know they're just they're just a little bit instant gratification all they want to do is jump the jumps they're not terribly interested in how to ride the horses on the flat mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but okay. the good ones are of course yep yep so so if you've got a rider that just wants to go you know faster higher 
who've got a talented horse but aren't sitting to the horse well, aren't going well? How are you going to, you know, what what sort of you, – you tell me, you know, what technique well, would you use? Well, you know, them? when they come to a coach like mm. me, mm. they sort of know what to expect. They know what I'm going to be emphasising and what mm-hmm. I'm going to be teaching them. Yep. So they've already got their head slightly in that direction. Mm-hmm. The sort of rider that you're describing, mm. you see less now than 20 years ago because mm-hmm. people now are generally generally much more training-oriented. They're often urban-based and not rural-based. Yep. So what you're describing is a little bit like the kids from the country who didn't have a lot of training but plenty of gung-ho and all they want to do is go out there and win stuff. Mm. And um, it's still out there and I still in many ways really love that. If you can get a kid with that sort of competitive drive and, you know, really wanting to be competitive, and then they've got a lot of good instincts about the way they ride. They're, often these are kids that have fanged around as juniors out, out at country shows and they've got a lot of miles. You know, they're probably, you know, almost born on a horse and they've got a lot of miles under the clock. If you can get those sorts of kids and then get them interested in learning and put the polish on them, I think that's almost the best result. I've got a working student here now. He sort of fits that description a little mm-hmm. bit, you know what I mean? Yep. And then, then, then you get the ones that come from totally the other end. You know, they're city-based kids. They started learning in a riding school. They've often got quite good riding skills, but they don't have those tough miles in the saddle and fanging around on junior ponies and kids' classes and things like that. For them, they come to the sport slightly differently. And, and to be quite honest, some of those end up amazing, you know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. Because they've got really good skills from the beginning. But often they're not quite as confident and brave because they were brought up with horses. All right. So thinking about coaching, training coaches, mm-hmm. some coaches have problems teaching jumping. What what do you think is a common problem that a coach has when they're teaching jumping and how can they fix it? Well, I, I think the most common problem that I see with mm. coaches who have problems is they don't genuinely know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. I know that's a bit of a harsh assessment, but it's true. There are plenty of people out there that, you know, because I, you know, my office at shows is in the practice area. Yep. So I hear a lot of stuff. You know, most people nowadays have a coach, except for the very advanced, experienced writers who, who are the, probably themselves coaches and they don't need coaching so much. But, you know, you hear a lot of stuff and you just raise your eyebrows and roll your eyes because they, they, they don't really know what they're talking about. They're misinformed. And I'm not talking about the parents who are getting in there and trying to help their kids. You know, yep. you don't expect them to, to necessarily just putting the fences up and they sometimes feel brave enough to make a comment. <laughs> but there's a lot of people out there, you know. But I think it's fair to say that in Australia, we're actually really blessed with a lot of very decent coaches because it's one of the few countries in the world where because the sport is not big enough and the prize money is not not enough that you can actually just rely on competing horses. So all the top riders, and we're talking about people with 30, 40 years of experience and a bunch of Olympics and world championships behind them, nearly all of the top riders coach as well. And that's mm. different from other countries where the riders ride because it's plenty lucrative enough, you know, to be out there doing that. Mm. But whereas in Australia, we've got to do a bit of everything. But I think it makes for a lot of good coaches out there. There's a lot of really, really good coaches. And, mm. and uh, you know, I think kids coming into the sport nowadays are very, very lucky. Yep. Because there's a lot of good advice out there. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to move on now to your team, you know, team of people that you've got just helping you manage how many horses have you got in work or on the property at the moment? Well, we've probably got about, you know, 40 horses on the property and probably 25 or 30 in work. Mm-hmm. But in work just means that they're being worked. Now, they might be being worked by their owners who are clients who keep them with us. Some of them might be in training with us. Some of them might be our own horses. 
that we're producing and building up and eventually to compete at a higher level and or sell or, you know, whatever. So, and, and some of those riders are very, very amateur riders who live in the city and are lawyers and things like that and they come out and they just love jumping and they go to the shows and they jump around the, the 110s and things like that to uh, a young kid here who's won the last two Australian Championships and juniors. Mm-hmm. And, and then much more advanced, my working student, she ran second in the World Cup at uh, Tamworth last week. You know, so there's a lot of different levels and, you know, and, and, uh, and a lot of different purchasing powers and, you know, and people who are able to devote time or, or money or energy to it varies a lot, you know what I mean? So, so yeah, but it, it's, it's a good it's a good group of people and it, yep. you know, it's been a fairly stable core group of clients for a long time, you know what I mean? And then there are people who just drift in and out, have a lesson once a week and, you know, I sometimes see them at the shows. And, and what about the staff? Tell me a bit about the jobs that they do. Well, okay, I guess my... My highest level employees is a girl called Amber Fuller. Yep. I think she's a girl. She's, she's not a girl. And she's been sort of with me in one way or another for, you know, 25 odd years. Mm-hmm. She came as a kid, as a student, and then she became a working student. And then she became a client again when she was at university. And I've sort of coached her that whole time. And then she came back as, as a paid staff member. And then she went off to England for a couple of years and then came back as a staff member for a while, then went to America for a year or two. But basically, apart from the odd year or two that she's been away, she's been here for about 25 years. And she's, she's a very smart girl. She's got a law degree, psychology degree, been in and around horses since she was a baby and uh, has competed at World Cups. She's produced a lot of horses. You know, she backs me. She can back me up in a, in a, in a lot of different ways. You know, because I've recently stopped riding. I'm 65, and, and uh, it gets to the point where my body was just not. You know, you get, you get sort of. I haven't had any shocking, shocking injuries, but I have had four back operations, and I've you know mm. smashed my shoulders around a little bit. It just gets to the point where you just don't enjoy it. It's just too painful. Mm-hmm. So I've sort of came to that conclusion about two or three years ago. So I've stopped riding. Okay. Amber used to do all the secondary riding to me. She can back up teaching the clients. The clients have all got a massive amount of respect for her. She does all the riding. There are days when she'd ride 10, 12 horses. Often they're clients horses that we are keeping on track, you know what I mean? Or, or sometimes the clients are they're studying or work or whatever, and we keep them in work. We have a young horse of our own. We have horses for training. So so Amber does a lot of that, but she can back up. She, you know, As I say, she used to be the backup rider. Now she's mm-hmm. the... The, the main rider, she can back up with a little bit of teaching. She can drive the truck. She can. She, she understands the business in and out. She sort of manages the stables and the staff, really, I guess. Yes. And she's good with the staff. They all respect her because she's an incredibly hard worker and she leads from the front. Okay. Okay. And then we've got a head girl, who a girl called Hanari. She's amazing. She's been with us for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And, and Henny comes to the shows with us. She's sort of the head girl. Yep. And then there's Kate who's the girl I was talking about who ran second in the World Cup at Tamworth. Yep. She's a working student. She's got a couple of horses of her own. She's a backup rider for Amber, and she rides you know, she rides a few of the client horses every day and her own, and she, she comes to the shows as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's what she's here for. Then we have another girl who's a stay-at-home girl who looks after the place when we're away, and that sort of varies, you know what I mean? It's, you know, you don't, we don't travel as much as we used to because there's so many great shows in Sydney now. That we don't have to, you know, we go up to Aquas, we go down to the Australian Championships, we go to Boneo. You know, we, we used to be away a lot for extended periods of time. We go down to Victoria for four weeks, or, you know, and up to Queensland for three or four weeks in August and 
but we don't do that anymore. You know what I mean? I, I think the sports have changed. It's just too expensive for people to be away. Mm-hmm. It's hard for clients because you've got clients who are, you know, work or at school. And so we just, we're much more selective about the shows that we travel long distances to. And we can afford to be because there's a lot of really good shows in Sydney all the time now. So, so anyway, so, so anyway, this girl looks after the place when we're not here. And that's probably the staff member that has got the highest turnover because, you know, they just come and go a little bit. Yep. Yep. And we've got a handyman. You know, there's a lot of maintenance on the place. There's sort of, you know, there's boxes and yards and paddocks for enough for about 60 horses. So, so there's always stuff that needs doing and there's sure. a, lot, a lot of gardens and arena maintenance and fencing and plumbing and so on as well. You know, so, so yeah, and, there, and then there's me, of course. <laughs> no, that's good. That, that sort of gives people a little bit of a rundown on oh, the type of jobs that are around and um, the types yeah, of jobs yeah. that are in a larger stable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the girls think that we could use one more, you know what I mean? But, but uh, we have had more horses in the past. I've become a little bit more selective about about just not taking it. We, we only have registers who actually – we don't have random registers at all. We only have registers who, who are doing the sport at the level that is interesting for us in terms of competition and, you know, have, having, having lesson and training and things like that. Yep. We just have a few paddocks up the back that we reserve for – Clients who want to give their horses a bit of a spell, or sometimes horses from the Sydney Showgrounds there at, at the Centennial Park, mm-hmm. uh, when they want to give their horses a spell, we have a connection with a few people in there, and they sometimes come out and spell them. That, that, that's nice; it gives the horses a bit of a break. Okay. But uh, we try to sort of keep it fairly tight and fairly competition focused. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, train, training focused anyway. Training, yep. training and lesson focused. Yeah. Yep. All right. Now, your father had a big earlier influence. Who else has influenced you and just helped you learn more, do more? Yeah, you know, I think, I think when I was a kid, it was sort of interesting because my generation, you know, and I'm talking about Colin Brook and Vicky yep. Roycroft and, and that sort of crew, only some of us had, had the advantage because in those days it was still pretty basic. Like the top show jumping riders like Kevin Bacon and Lindsay Ball and things like that, you know, they, they never had any sort of a European-educated background. You know, they came from camp drafting and flag and bend and barrels and, you know what I mean? They were just country kids who went to the country show, did a bit of flag and bend, did a bit of this, did a bit of that, and they found they had a bit of a talent for jumping. And some of them were amazing riders. But it was not what you'd call a dressage-based education and the horses were pretty wild. So because of my father, I sort of was pushed in that direction a little bit, and Colleen and Vicky trained with a guy who was a Hungarian who was a compatriot of my father, a guy called Karl Urenak, who was based here in Sydney. And we were sort of lucky. And, and but basically, in Melbourne, there was a guy called Art Utendahl, who was a Dutchman yes. who had emigrated to Australia. And he was a fantastic rider, and a, you know, he sort of just a typical European rider. He was very, very proficient on the flat. His horses were all beautifully trained, beautifully schooled, and he won everything. So for me, he was a major influence, you know, whereas in New South Wales, apart from Colleen and Vicky, Everyone saw Kevin Bacon and Lindsay Ball and all those country boys who were terrific riders, but just while they all aeroplaned out of the saddle in those days, and it was mm. so all the young riders aeroplaned out of the saddle, and so we were lucky in Melbourne that we we sort of we sort of had Art as our major influence. You know, he he won everything. He yep. won everything, and not just one. He ran first, second, third, and fourth in almost <laughs> everything. You know, so so he was a huge influence on all the young riders that came out of Melbourne. So most of that generation of riders were far more sort of European influenced and sort of what you'd call classical or correct in, in the way they rode. Whereas in New South Wales, apart from there was a little group around Sydney that with Carl Urenak, but you know, north of the border up in Queensland, it was pretty wild. 
mm-hmm. and it took a long time really for that to change. So yeah, I'd say Art, Art Newton-Dale and, and George Morris, you know, he came and did clinics in Sydney almost every year from sort of the mid-80s mm. and, and I always took part in those clinics and I always thought that they were, that they were, you know, they were probably a little hard for the greener riders but for the advanced riders, it was amazing. You know, I think it was pretty intimidating for some of the greener, younger ones but for those of us who were already jumping at a very high level and, you know, sort of around Olympics and that sort of stuff, he was terrific. I mean, mm. he really kept reminding you about good basic stuff that, that still had to be done correctly, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Tell us a bit about horses that you've had, the ones who've influenced you the most. Yeah. It's sort of um, – I only ever sat on thoroughbreds until the mid-'80s, you know, so, so, so you know, half of half about of all there was. Yeah. Of course, that's yeah. all it was. It was interesting, you know, like, you know, a lot of thoroughbreds, you know, so I started riding in the mid '60s, you know, early mid '60s, and you know, had thoroughbreds, and and you know, but you know, didn't have any money to spend any money on horses, and and uh, so they came out of the sale yards, or you know, out, out of the uh, you know, tried stock sales and that sort of stuff. So there were all sorts of things, and you know, we tried to educate them, but it was hey, I wasn't very good at it, even though I did quite a lot of venting, and I was probably a little bit more dressage based than most people. That, that were not always easy to educate, and they sort of jumped in their own way. And I remember it was some years after I had already been jumping Grand Prix, and I, you know, I was jumping in part one at Sydney at Melbourne Royal anyway when I was you know, younger. And and a, a client came to my father with a horse that was stopping with a girl or something like that, and Dad Dad asked me to to take it on and to do a little bit with it. It wasn't a thoroughbred; it was sort of like it was a lovely type of horse. You'd look at it today and say it's just a really lovely model, you know, lovely warm blood model. But there were no warm bloods around then. I think he had a little bit of cold blood in him, a little bit of thoroughbred in him. He was just a lovely. Lovely type. He wasn't a superstar. He was never going to go to the Olympics or anything like that. But that horse, more than any other that I'd ever ridden, actually jumped in the most beautiful way. You know what I mean? He jumped with a lovely shape. He travelled nicely. You know, you could ride him to a fence and just soften your hand, and he just took a lovely shape and he jumped it. Whereas with the old thoroughbreds, they'd be running at the jumps and you'd be pulling him off the front rails. And, and as I say, I was probably in my early 20s, mm-hmm. and I'd been jumping in Grand Prix since I was 16. Yep. And I thought, this, this is what this sport is about. This is, this is what you're aiming for. This is what horses have to be like to be able to jump really well and effectively. So, so even though it wasn't any significant horse at all, it was sort of like it was just a horse that I jumped around 120s and gave back to the girl. It actually really made me understand for the first time, because in those days there were no videos of horses in Europe and you couldn't just turn on YouTube and watch, you know, or FEI TV or anything like that. You know what I mean? So I was really flying blind. And then when I rode that horse... You know, even scanning around over a meter, I yes. just thought this horse is what I'm really aiming for with all the horses that I train. They've got to, it's, they've got to be like this, and there's a process that you get them soft and you get them round and you get them loose and relaxed and carrying over poles and you know. And mm. so that horse taught me a lot. In, in many ways, it was you know even though it was you know I've had lots and lots and lots of Grand Prix horses and done lots of things with a lot of different horses. That horse actually really opened my eyes as to how a horse should jump when it jumps correctly, you know, what a correct jump mm. feels like. So it, it did have a big influence on me, if not, not that it was a big part of, of my life or my career. Do, do you remember his name? Can't remember a name? Yeah, I think his name was, uh, his name was Limerick. Okay. Yeah, just a sweet horse, you know what I mean? But, but, but it was a very sort of important horse in, in my very early days because I only rode inverted hot thoroughbreds and to get on this horse that just traveled beautifully got to the jump and just backed up and jumped you know just took a lovely shape in the air and just landed and carried away and he, he was careful he was he was techniquey and it just yeah it just suddenly really clicked with me how horses need to jump 
to be really good jumpers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess over the years, you know, I had a lot of horses. I guess the horse that, that, that I had a lot of success on and I really, really loved was a horse called King Amiga. He was a thoroughbred, but he was rather like a warm blood. It doesn't seem like that long ago, but it was sort of in the mid-80s, early early 80s I had that horse. And he was yeah, he was a beautiful jumper. He'd be even a better jumper now in, in the modern era, you know, now that the fences are careful and more technical. In those days, they used to be solid and big and a bit scary for a careful horse, mm-hmm. but he was a wonderful, wonderful horse. In, in his first year in part one at Sydney Royal before he went to Europe, he won all six classes. You know, he was just a really, really, really good horse, mm-hmm. just a real, a real competitor, beautiful to ride, had a bit of fun and mischief about him, but but uh, but jump jumped like a, a proper jumper, jumped like a warm blood, not, you know, not not quick and square like a thoroughbred can be. He had a little bit of mischief in him, but no tension. You know, he's a really, really nice horse. Yep. And um, I'm still a fan of the thoroughbreds. Not that I go out searching for them, but but if one comes my way and it's a nice thoroughbred, I'd still really, really love them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Then, mm-hmm. All right. Well, what's your proudest moment that you've had? Oh, God. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think the proudest times that I have is when I produce a horse from scratch and it goes on to become a really, really good horse. And it goes out and wins a major class, an Australian championship or a few World Cups or something like that. You know what I mean? I, that, I really get a lot of, you know, I guess proud. It really makes me happy that I've this horse was once just plopping over cross rails and now it's a really lovely horse and it's able to win classes like this. But that makes me very proud to be able to do that. Lots of good riders can get on a really good Grand Prix horse and win classes. Everyone loves to win. That's what we, you know, that's a sport and we compete. So, yep. so it's a competition. So we, lo- we love to win. But I'm not saying, you know, if someone gives you a Grand Prix horse and you go out and win some big classes, it would make you very happy. But I'm not sure that it would make you proud because it's not really so much your achievement. Whereas if you produce a horse from a low level and it goes on to become a really good horse and to win stuff, that makes me proud, mm-hmm. really, I guess. I guess more, more than anything else. And, and the thing that really, I think, even more makes me proud, I've got to say, is when my clients that I've produced and I've managed their careers and I've, you know, they've come to me not being good riders or being scared or having no skills at all and I've produced them, I've managed their careers, I've found them the horses, I've coached them, I've walked the courses with them, I've suffered their pain when things have gone badly and they come out and they do really well. I actually think I'm more proud of that than anything I've ever done myself. Mm -hmm. As a coach, I get a lot of pride in my students that I've had a big hand in getting major success. So that makes me very proud too. Yep. All right. So we talked about what you look at from riders, you know, having something that makes them shine away from everyone else. What about a horse? If you're looking, like you said, producing a horse from scratch, what are you looking for in a jumping horse? Well, I think jumping ability. They've got to produce a bit of power off the floor. They've got to have you know, the horses can have all these qualities in slightly different measures, which can make them still very good. You know, a horse, if it really wants to be careful, it's got a lot of power, then he can maybe get away with a technique flaw. If it's a little slow in front, you know what I mean, provided it's well-ridden, it can still be a very, very good horse. If a horse has got great technique, maybe he can be a little less rideable than some, you know what I mean, because they're so good when they get to the jump. Mm-hmm. If they're really sharp and alert and technique and on the job and they're a little bit wild and a little bit, a little bit wrangly to ride, they'll probably still be very, very good horses. 
So there's a certain amount of quality. They've got to be brave. They've got to be careful. They've got to be scopy. This is to be at a high level, yep. and they've got to have good technique and rideable. So those sorts of things can come in slightly different ratios with each of those qualities, and they can still be very good horse. If you get a horse with all of those qualities, you've got a very, very, very good horse. You know what I mean? But most horses have got some qualities in greater parts than others. Yep, yep. Just going back to the riders again, you know, you've ridden and competed quite a lot and you do, you know, that's your office to watch other riders. What sort of silly competition mistakes do you see that just from lack of knowledge that people make? The most common errors that riders make in competing that brings them undone, the horse Mm. stops or knocks the fence down or something like that, distance errors, you know what I mean? They get too close, they get too far away, they get to a distance where the horse just can't jump the jump and he stops or he crashes through the jump. Yeah, that's the most dramatic. And that, of course, that's the hardest thing to teach because it's not something you can actually teach someone to do to see a distance. You can give them all the sort of triggers that help, you know, be relaxed, get a great canter, be soft in your arms, stay relaxed. But in the end, it's a little bit like when people sort of get a bit exasperated and I say to them, look, you've got to jump a lot of jumps, you know. Mm. People who have got none came out of the womb being able to see a distance to a fence on a horse. Yes. You know, so you've got to jump a lot of jumps and you've got to do a lot of this to get good at it, to get consistent. When someone's a beginner, they just can't jump and see nothing and the horse has to figure it out. But hopefully, if they jump the cross rail, then it doesn't matter so much. The horse can find his way over the cross rail. And as they jump more and more and more, and I'm talking years, they start to develop that judgment and they can see, okay, if I continue like this, I'm going to be too far away. I have to just move up a little bit and get the horse a bit closer. Or if I continue like this, I'm going to be way too close and the horse is going to have trouble jumping so I have to shorten his stride and give him give him a little bit of room in front of the jump. That process takes a long time and I, and I often draw an analogy to people which they seem to understand. I say, let's imagine that your passion was rifle shooting mm-hmm. and you want to go to the Olympics in rifle shooting and, and you buy yourself a good rifle and you go to the shooting range. You know, are you going to be able to hit the bullseye every time. And they said, God, no, we'd be lucky to get anywhere near the target. Mm. And I say, well, that's, that's the point. And I, as your rifle shooting coach, I can't teach you to hit the bullseye. What I can teach you to do is how to hold the gun, how to breathe, how to sight it, how to relax, how to gently squeeze the trigger and not jerk the trigger. I can teach you all of those things. And once I teach you those things, you're going to have the, the tools in place to hit the bullseye once you've shot 100,000 rounds. And you mm-hmm. get better and better and better at it. But that judgment is something that is within you. I can only teach you the technical aspects of it. The actual judgment is something that you have to do by doing it. And that's what I say to people about judgment. Because, of course, getting bad distance is what, you know, in the sport we call them misses. You know, having, you know missing yep. Yep. Is, is the thing that, that people come out of the rounds and burst into tears over them because they've just... They just don't totally cock it up <laughs> and the horse has stopped and pitched them over the jump and because they had a really bad distance. And I can just say, okay, what contributed to that? Because you normally don't miss. You're at the stage now. You know, you're jumping meter 30 and you don't miss for, you know, you don't get to jumping meter 30 by missing all the time. But, you know, what contributed to that is you came into that line. You know it was a steady four. You jumped in with a really big canter. You made no effort to shorten the horse and he got down there in three and a half. You couldn't mm. jump it. Mm. Or you jumped that fence back there and you didn't get him back and get him balanced then you had this crazy long distance. And so there's normally a reason, but in the end, it comes down to the judgment. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of time to acquire. And no one, no one, you know, the best riders in the world every now and again make mistakes. They don't make them very often. Mm-hmm. They probably make them more when they're under massive pressure against the clock and they're trying to turn up on a dime and, you know, find a distance from nowhere. But everyone makes mistakes. But as you get more proficient at the sport and as your eye develops and as you get more consistent, you make less and less. 
and that's when you're ready to start jumping bigger tracks and end up jumping Grand Prix tracks. You know, mm-hmm. and while you make one significant distance error every two or three jumps, then you need to be jumping under a meter. You know what I mean? Because no horse will keep going like that. Yes. So that's the obvious one, you know, but then there are a lot of technical things. In Australia, one of the major ones you see really is what we call throwing their body. So when the horse leaves the ground, instead of just staying balanced and just the jump and staying in a neutral position, they launch their body up the horse's neck. Mm-hmm. So suddenly the balance has changed. The horse sort of gets quick and it gets low in front and it has fences down. And, you know, so if you're talking, you know, just a silly thing that people do, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you, it's quite fixable, but a lot of people are unaware of it or their coaches don't tell them about it or it's just a habit they can't break or whatever because they did it as a kid and it's a bit hard to, you know, and it's one of the things that I, I'm always onto people about, you know, about not doing that because because it's an unnecessary way to knock a fence down because they've actually ridden to the fence pretty well, they've got a good distance, the horse wants to jump the jump and they just launch their body up its neck and the horse loses its balance and, and, and tips the fence down, you know, and so... There are many, many, many ways. No. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a difficult, it's a very difficult sport. You mean, there's so many ways to cock it up. And mm-hmm. uh, that, that's why it's such a buzz when you do it well. You mm-hmm. know, so mm-hmm. that's why people get so sort of hooked on it because it's, yep. uh, it is difficult. Yes. Yeah. Okay. What about a book? Have you got a book that you could recommend for our listeners? I'm not sort of a, a bookie person. I think that George Morris's Hunter Seat Equitation still is probably mm-hmm. the tome for the sport. You know what I mean? I think it's, it's says it all. You know what I mean? I think it's a very well-written book and George is a very clever guy and he's a good communicator and it's full of really good basic equitation and writing knowledge. You know what I mean? So, mm. I, you know, I, I, I think that's as good as any. I, I think there are some good training articles around, but generally the people who read these things are people with not a lot of knowledge or understanding and they're looking for some pearl of wisdom. Mm-hmm. that really can only come from getting out there and doing it. And, you know, I, I see a lot of people read stuff that don't really know where it fits into the overall scheme of, of things, you know what I mean? Because they don't really have any point of reference to, if, if you know, if, if a trainer says something about training a horse or, or whatever. And often the real amateurs and the novices, they actually don't get useful advice out of it. They actually get confused, mm-hmm. you know, with a lot of books and training articles because they have so little knowledge of their own to actually put something into context. Okay. Anyway, that's just my view, and I'm not anti-books at all. I'm, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, you know, for sure. I've, I've been around books all my life, but good, good writing, good, correct writing is the trick in the sport. Everyone's looking for a trick. Everyone's looking for some, you know, the epiphany is to sit well on a horse, to ride well on a horse, to be consistent, to understand what you're doing, and by repeating it and repeating it and repeating it, getting a horse to to. That's how we train horses, by repeating the exercise so that the horse assimilates it and understands and he starts to go that way. Mm-hmm. You know, if your horse lands and he wants to tank off after the jump, well, you, you just land and you slow down and you land and you slow down and you do that in a way that is as strong as it needs to be but as soft as it can be. Mm-hmm. And you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. If that horse has had a habit of landing and, and tanking off because the previous rider um, just let it, then it's going to take a little while for you to change what it does because mm. it's it's been trained to do something different. So you've got to retrain it. So you just gotta you gotta write it well, you've got to be clear about what you want it to do, and you've got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it until the horse says, Okay, I know what you want now. And it okay. lands and canters away and doesn't run away. You yep. know what I mean? yep. So uh, it's uh, good riding is 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 the secret okay. in the sport. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's not a big secret. Yep. 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 All right. So you've talked about you're not riding, competing anymore. What does your future hold? What do you plan? What do you have got planned over the next few years? 
Oh, well, I love my life. It's varied. You know, mm-hmm. you know like going back six weeks, we went down to Bonio. We went to the Australian Championships with a whole bunch of clients and horses. We had generally great success. We won, one, of, one of our people won one of the, you know, one of the three Australian Championships were available and another one ran second in the other one. And so, so we, we had generally had a good show. We took young horses. We produced the horses. We, we did that. I came home. I went to Europe with a client to buy a couple of horses, came back, went to Tamworth, working student. Mm-hmm. My day consists of teaching most days. Yes. So I get up in the morning and teach for a good deal of the day and then run the place, do a bit of stuff around the place when I've got time to do that and drive the truck to the shows. You know, my life's great. You know I mean, I'm involved in the, even though I don't ride anymore. You know, I'm 65. It's, it's, how many sports can you do past, <laughs> you know, Not many. 40 or 50, <laughs> let alone, you know, I won the Australian Championships when I was 59, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. so, you know, we're lucky to be in a sport where you do have longevity, but one day, sooner or later, you just got to stop. So yep. I, don't, I, don't, and I don't miss it a lot. Every now and again, I want to get on a horse and show someone something or to get, get a point across, which, I, which used to be a feature of my teaching my whole life, mm. which I don't do anymore because I can't, yeah, I'm not even dressed for it anymore, you know. So, <laughs> so in that respect, I miss a little bit that, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I, do, I don't really miss riding on a daily basis. So the last few years was sort of painful. And, and as much as I love jumping and competing, I don't miss it that much. Okay. But I, loved, I, I do enjoy teaching. And as I said before, I get a lot of joy when the people I teach do well and you feel that, that you are responsible for putting that whole effort together. Yes. That makes me really happy. I've got a nice place. I, I enjoy living here. And, you know, life's fine. How long I keep doing it for? You know, once again, I'm, I'm sort of lucky. You can ride until you're 60. You can teach until you're 80 if you want, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you feel you want to. Or, and I can see myself maybe, maybe sometime in the future, getting a much smaller place, mm-hmm. or maybe even you know not having a place and just doing very selected teaching, or or maybe not at all, but maybe investing in a couple of horses and placing them with good riders. So have, I have that interest and have the financial interest because that's what I've done all my life: produced and sold horses. And that's mm-hmm. uh, you know I don't have a place like I have because I was earning eighty dollars an hour teaching because that's not very lucrative. So yeah. so you every yeah. now and again you've got to you know every rider's had a couple of valuable horses that they've had to sell or wanted to sell that has actually kicked them financially and maybe got a deposit together to buy their first property or something like that. You know, so yeah. in this in this country, unless you're independently wealthy or have a different income, selling horses is very much a part of the agenda that keeps you in the sport. So every now and again, you've got to sell one that you'd love to have kept. But, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, so, but, but that's, I've done that all my life and I would see myself doing that. Yep. In the future, just you know, maybe just investing in two or three horses and placing them with someone or someone's. In the foreseeable future, I, you know, what I do is not especially taxing, you know, and it's, it's yes. a, I get up, I get up and teach, and keeps my mind going, keeps me active, keeps me thinking, keeps me involved, and so far we're doing it really successfully. You know, we're producing a lot of good riders, and and, uh, and it's it's lots of fun. Good, good. Before we finish, can you sum up your philosophy into a lesson? something that people can take away, think about, and learn from the interview? I'm not sure I can... I'll take it from two different points of view. I'll start with saying, you know, for people who who want to progress in the sport and they want some advice on how to progress, my answer is learn, learn, learn. You know, get every opportunity to be coached well. It's not an easy sport 
to find your own way in, you know what I mean? So whatever you can afford, you know what I mean? If you don't have a lot of money to spend, join a group of other guys and try and get to a good coach as a group and it only costs you 20 or 30 bucks each or something like that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, never miss an opportunity to learn because in the end, and this is what I said before, in the end, the people who ride well are the people who do well, you know what I mean? So, so learning to ride well, which is a whole lot easier when you're young than when you're older. To, to actually get good riding skills, you know, learn to sit on a horse well, learn to, and then, the, you know, the lesson is to do things correctly and to do them, you know, repetitiously. So your horse, that's how we train horses. We ask them to do things correctly and we keep repeating. So in the end, the only way they know how to do things is to do them correct. And it's the same with the rider. You know, if you get good riding skills and good riding habits and you sit well on a horse and you sit well on a horse when it jumps the jump, then it's just as easy to learn to do things correctly as it is to learn incorrectly and that's where a good coach makes a big difference because they can put you on a path where you have good riding skills and that's the only that's the only way you know how to ride and that's mm-hmm. correctly it's just as easy to ride correctly as badly in fact it's a whole lot easier but you can't hold a mirror to yourself and see what you're doing you might imagine that you look like easy madden on a horse but in fact you look terrible you know what i mean <laughs> so you've got to take every opportunity to get coaching and a good coach has got a lifetime of experience about how to deal with your horse's particular problems because he's dealt with those sorts of things many times in his life and he can put you on the right track where you're struggling, you don't know how to advance and his horse has got all these problems and one or two lessons with a good coach will, will just put you on the right track because he's been there, he's done that, he's, he's dealt mm. with that problem. Yes. So, you know, that would be always my advice, you know, mm-hmm. get help, get coaching as much as you can afford Go to a coach that knows his stuff or her stuff and works for you. Yes. You know, that would be my advice. Well, that's the same whether you're doing dressage or, or jumping or probably any equestrian discipline and, and probably golf or tennis as well. But, but, <laughs> but we're talking about we're talking about we're talking about show jumping, which, which you know, if you if you do golf or tennis badly, the worst thing that happens is that you'll get frustrated. But if you do equestrian sports badly, you'll probably get hurt. You know what I mean? So it's, it's very important to have good skills. Yep. Yep. Now, how can people contact you? What's the best way? Oh, well, email. Uh, I, I, I do have a website. Oh, yes, I've seen that. Yep. Yeah, which is extremely basic because I'm not very tech savvy. But I think in this industry, it's sort of word of mouth. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, well, I think it is. You know, if, you, if you're running a writing school and you just want clients through the door, okay, you, want, you, you need to promote yourself and, and to be out there and things like that. But I think when you're teaching competition-level writers – by and large, it's reputation and word of mouth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't even have a Facebook page or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, I've got a website. I've got a telephone. And I'm great <laughs> on the telephone. <laughs> so there's a website there, Santa Equestrian Bloodstock. But yep. get, get in, Santa, and you'll be there. And there's an email address there. And, and yeah. You know, I'm always happy to hear from people. Okay, and I'll put a link to that on our website too, which will be oh, okay, thank yeah, horsechats.com slash George Santa. Yep. Okay, George, great. Right. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you today. I've just thoroughly enjoyed it. You've gone far more than anyone else. I think you hold the record now for the longest interview. But oh, e- really? every <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Christine Doan did well, so but I think you've done better. Um, uh, how is Christine? I haven't seen her for years. Yeah, good. Is she good. still up at Alfred or something? She is. Like she is and loving yeah, it. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just going. She, she came to one, one Olympic team I was on. She was she was she was our dressage representative. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Now we talked about that at the interview. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. It, was, it was very good. Okay. But I think all the information, as Christine, you know, all the information you've given us has been just educational. 
You know, every time I've asked you a question, you've completely filled this in. So you've, no, you've been very generous with your time. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, it's very I, I, good. I think, you know, I, I think if you do a lot of coaching, it's very easy to talk about it because you, that, you do that all the time. You know, I, mm. I sort of, you know, I sort of talk about riding and training and that sort of stuff all the time every day. So it's pretty easy to talk about the sport and talk about training and riders and horses because, as I say, that's, that's what I think about all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And stream of consciousness. <laughs> well, I think you, you come in from one point of view and then keep going and go in from another point of view, you know, just to explain it in a few different yeah, ways. Right. Yeah. yeah right. All right. Well, I'm going to say goodbye and thanks very much for the interview today. And yeah, I'll put the contact details on the website. Okay? Okay. And thank you. Okay. Thank thanks you. a lot. Bye. Okay. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses, or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 